Welcome back. Uh, my name is Doug Ginsberg, and I am the moderator for the uh, panel discussion now on originalist theories of constitutional interpretation. Uh, I guess I uh, warn you at the outset that I interpret the word moderator uh, not as uh, meaning that I should exert a moderating influence, but uh, quite the opposite, uh, more like an inciter. Um, I will uh, uh, begin very briefly and then introduce the panelists. We'll go around once with uh, 10 minutes for each panelist and then uh, um, a reprise, as uh, Paul Batar put it, and then questions from the floor, ending at 1.15. Uh, briefly, uh, I note the power of a misleading metaphor, uh, whether it's shouting uh, fire in a crowded theater uh, or uh, acting as the janitor in the uh, edifice of the uh, society. Uh, this will undoubtedly be remembered as the janitorial conference years from now. But I know that when, when others uh, talk about the nature of uh, property, uh, its character, its inherent characteristics, and uh, whether indeed uh, property arrangements are efficient or uh, if the important point is uh, that they are contingent. Uh, I feel not so much like a janitor as like a, a, a conveyancer. Uh, and that's quite all right, as far as I'm concerned. Now, in the course of two panel discussions, um, at a conference allegedly called to discuss the renewal, uh, the revival of uh, classical jurisprudence, uh, we've heard, uh, for the most part, that it's impossible, uh, the, uh, the opposition saying that it's irrelevant. Uh, our topic now is the special variant or spe subspecies, I guess, of a certain type of classicism called originalism and whether that is possible. Last evening, uh, Dean-designate Stone uh, referred to the debate between the originalists and evolutionists, such as himself, um, I think subtly suggesting a contrast between evolutionists, such as himself, and creationists, uh, such as uh, the rest of us. Um, but I would offer as Exhibit A for the dangers of allowing um, evolution to become the predilections of the uh, particular uh, judges that happen to be sitting, uh, my own predilections. Uh, Dean-designate Stone would, uh, would certainly not want to unleash them. I um, offer one story uh, uh, relevant to, I hope, relevant to the discussion, um, stimulated by the general observation, and I think there was consensus uh, to some degree last evening, that um, in a turning point in our, in our evolution came in 1937. When I was an undergraduate, I heard Francis Perkins, who had been the Secretary of Labor in the uh, administration of Franklin Roosevelt, relating the response that the administration then was debating to, uh, that they would make to the uh, decision striking down the first labor, uh, National Labor Relations Act, which was a title of the National Industrial Recovery Act. And she said she was standing with Jimmy Burns at a uh, reception in Washington uh, discussing whether 
to you which, which of two drafts of another National Labor Relations Act uh, they should use in a second attempt. Uh, one, the one predicated on the taxing power or the one predicated on the commerce power. As they were discussing this, a Supreme Court justice, whose name she never revealed to her students and perhaps to nobody, came up behind them with his mouth full of cake and said, the commerce power, my dear, the commerce power, and walked on. Well, the debate over uh, competing visions of constitutional interpretation has uh, attained a, a more public uh, status recently. A noteworthy feature of this debate is the fact that it is not uh, limited to the academy. Uh, on the contrary, it's been given widespread uh, public attention through the efforts of the Attorney General, several of the uh, sitting Supreme Court justices, and a number of other uh, public figures who've spoken out on issues of constitutional interpretation. And I would suggest that what has happened thus far uh, merely foreshadows the coming of a, uh, a continuation of a vigorous debate, at least uh, through this bicentennial season. What is original intent, uh, if we can define it? Uh, should we apply it to the constitutional issues of the day? Uh, what do we do when original intent uh, is uh, silent uh, with respect to a particular issue? Are there competing visions of originalism? Uh, and what are the alternatives to originalism? Uh, today, we're privileged to hear from uh, four uh, very distinguished scholars who will address some of these issues. And one other uh, question that is of particular interest to me, perhaps because of my self-image as a conveyancer, and that is what originalism can tell us when its lessons would require disowning substantial bodies of constitutional uh, precedent. As you can see, I'm still in the basement to some extent. We will hear first from Raoul Berger, who was the Charles Warren Senior Fellow in American Legal History at the Harvard Law School, and a uh, dear colleague of mine when I was there. I think uh, uh, he could fairly uh, be called by somebody who admires him as much as I do, Harvard's dirty little secret a prolific scholar and a defender of originalism, the author of several influential books on constitutional law, including Congress versus the Supreme Court, and other books on impeachment, executive privilege, and the 14th Amendment. In several recent law review articles, he's attempted to close off all possible avenues of escape to what he describes as the activist flight from the Constitution. Um, according to Mr. Berger, uh, activists have thrust aside the Constitution's self-evident meaning in favor of spurious uh, ideologies. Originalists or interpretivists, on the other hand, maintain that the provision of the provisions of the Constitution uh, mean what the founders intended them to mean, their original intention. Uh, and I'll quote uh, Professor Berger once and then allow him to speak for himself. Uh, he says he is of the view, that pro uh, the view that proceeds from the founders' unequivocal canon that all federal power must be drawn from the Constitution. We will hear second, I will not be popping up back and forth in between them, I'll tell you what to expect. We'll hear second from Dean Robert Bennett of the Northwestern University Law School, which is somewhere else uh, in the Northwest Territory, I suppose. In his, uh, in his articles, Objectivity in Constitutional Law and the Mission of Moral Reasoning in Constitutional Law, 
Uh, Dean Bennett asserts that original, originalism is, and I quote, an utterly impoverished way of thinking about constitutional law, close quote. I apologize for the seating arrangement. <laughs> Uh, 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 to, Dean, to Dean Bennett, originalism is flawed by a static pretense that looks exclusively to textual language, uh, understood in light of the intentions or values behind its enactment uh, as the proper source for constitutional interpretation. Dean Bennett has argued that a judge cannot persistently return to first principles. We will hear uh, then from Michael McConnell, an assistant professor of law here at the University of Chicago. Uh, professor McConnell, uh, prior to joining the faculty, uh, held positions uh, at the Office of Management and Budget and in the Solicitor General's office. His scholarship has illuminated what was for too long a somewhat neglected stepchild within the First Amendment, the religion clauses. And in his writings in the Supreme Court Review and elsewhere, uh, Professor McConnell has advocated a return to an interpretation of the religion clauses grounded firmly in the political theory underlying the Constitution as a whole. According to Professor McConnell, religious liberty, not strict separation or neutrality, is the central value of the First Amendment. His interpretation would result in a substantially new First Amendment jurisprudence in which pluralism and liberty, not secularism and separation, define the relation between church and state under the Constitution. Finally, Michael Moore, who is the Robert Kingsley Professor of Law at the University of Southern California Law Center. In his article, A Natural Law Theory of Interpretation, and later in his book, The Semantics of Judging, Professor Moore proposes a natural law theory in which a judge must engage in the moral reasoning that makes legal reasoning possible. Ten minutes apiece, and then a reprise. Thank you. Raul. I, I feel somewhat like Rip Van Winkle, who's opening his eyes on a brave new world. Not at all sure he understands what's going on around him. I was greatly comforted by Charles Freed's observation coming from a leading legal philosopher uh, his, that he deplored the eruption of the philosophy into the law. And one of the things when I emerged from the cave that struck my eye was this discourse about levels of abstraction. And at that time, an article by Jacques Barzun came across my desk, wherein, and I paraphrase roughly, he said, that's a ladder that leads you up into the clouds, so that if you climb high enough, the croaking of a frog and the song of a great soprano equally start off airwaves, and ergo they're therefore the same. Now, because of my own shortcomings, I'm going to have to be much more earthy than my predecessors. And let me start with an observation that was made 35 years ago by Willard Hurst, an outstanding legal historian. Roughly, he said, when we're talking about constitutional interpretation, we're talking about an issue of power. 
And the question is, who is going to make the changes? The judges are the people. Now, this morning, Judge Posner emphasized that the Constitution is a text. Let me add to that that it's a, it's a text of very special and peculiar significance. It's a text that was designed to limit and hobble the exercise of power by the delegates of the people. Designed to limit the exercise of power. That's the background, it seems to me, from which we've got to proceed and evaluate what the delegates are doing. Long before Bracton, a remarkable North Carolinian, Thomas Burke, exhibited a grasp of the greediness of power that had to be guarded against. On top of that, the founders had a profound distrust of judicial discretion. In fact, even a Tory judge, Thomas Hutchison of Massachusetts, said that way lies slavery. It was for that reason that Chancellor Kent referred to a dangerous discretion to roam at large in the trackless fields of a judge's imagination. That portrays for you what was the attitude of the founders to judicial discretion. Now, I'm a little surprised to hear about varieties of originalism, uh, the variety that only one I knew is like the good old-fashioned religion, and let me define it. I understand by original intention the explanation that draftsmen give of what their words were designed to accomplish, what their words mean. That is what original intention means to me. Now why, they ask us, should we allow the founders to rule us from their graves? Well, if you carry that a little bit further, if they don't rule us from their graves, where's the authority of the judges? Because they're the people that conferred power on the judges. That text stands not partially, but in whole. Original intention is required because many of the words in the Constitution subsume an enormous range of meaning. One has only to think of equal protection, for example. It means so much that one commentator says it means nothing. And those words serve as a crystal ball from which a judge like a soothsayer can draw forth anything he wants. And as I said earlier, that flies in the face of distrust of judicial discretion. There's another th thing. One who studies the historical records comes away with knowledge that the states very grudgingly, very jealously delegated some of their powers and only so much as they consider was necessary for, quote, national, unquote, purposes. Now, it's utterly inconceivable that these grudging states would endow the judges with a power that would place the states utterly at their mercy, as in fact has proven the case under the court's readings of the Commerce Clause. That's not what the founders had in mind at all. I can say that confidently and categorically. You also want to remember that Hamilton, who was engaged in reassuring 
the electorate, that the judges were next to nothing. And the idea of confiding to them the power to rewrite the Constitution, because that's what we're really talking about. Let's get rid of all the verbiage and euphemisms. Can judges revise the Constitution because, as Justice Black scornfully said, they want to bring it in tune with the times? Let me allude also to a, a basic presupposition. And this is one that you can find at least as early as Francis Bacon, reiterated by our own James Wilson and by Chief Justice Marshall, that the function of a judge is to construe, to interpret, not to make law. That distinction was drawn time and again in later opinions by the Supreme Court. The duty of the judge is simply to interpret the law, not to make it. If it doesn't meet the circumstances, that's beyond our ken. We can't revise it. We also want to remember one other thing. There was a very severe battle over the adoption of the Constitution. And in many states, it was really just touch and go. In some, it was utterly defeated, as in North Carolina. Now, in order to allay hostility, to reassure the ratifiers, first the Federalists, and then the ratifiers sought to explain the meaning of the words in order to allay suspicion. For example, Hamilton downgraded the powers of the presidency to an extraordinary degree. I wish there were time to expatiate on that. Now, those assurances were designed to garner votes, and I submit to you they were representations. And Justice Story later wrote about similar representations that to repudiate them would be a fraud on the American people. Now, activists scorn the original intention, not because they have access to a deeper well of learning, but because that intention undermines the modern decisions which effectuated their aspirations. Aspirations, I may say, which I may I share, but I won't warp the Constitution in order to effectuate them. Until they sought to bolster the Warren Court's decisions, Judge Robert Bork observed, there was never any doubt that the document was to be construed as to give effect as nearly as possible to the intention of those who made it. I may say, on the basis of a recent study that I published, I am convinced, and I wish I had time to give you a chapter and verse, that there's 700 years of history, including American history, for the doctrine of intention. And as Holmes said once, when a doctrine is as old as 200 years, you've got to make a mighty strong case to overturn it. What's at stake is revealed by Benno Schmidt, president of Yale University, who recently said, referring to the desegregation decision, despite the clear probability that its authors did not intend it as such, the clear probability, the 14th Amendment's general language allowed it to be used to spur a revolution in race relations. In other words, the court read general words in disregard of the specific intention 
in order to work a revolution in race relations. One may agree that a revolution was needed and yet question whether the court was meant to be the instrument of revolution. That's the issue that's involved in this colorless phrase, original intention. For many centuries, courts have turned to the original intention. An English historian, S.B. Crimes, concluded that the rule of reference to the intention of the legislator was certainly established by the second half of the 15th century. My own reading, and I won't burden you with the citation, places at least as early as the 13th century. In 1615, Chief Justice Cook said that in construing acts of parliament, the original intent and meaning is to be observed. Express words, he stated, were to govern when the meaning of the makers does not appear to the contrary. That's when express words govern. And that's a rule that the medievalists adopted before him, the famous uh, bloodletting in the streets of Bologna. And it's become a rule no matter what the words are, for example, in statutory construction. If the intention appears, it overrides the words. Our own Justice James Wilson, second only to Madison as an architect of the Constitution, stated, the first and governing maxim in the interpretation of a statute is to discover the meaning of those who made it. Little wonder that Chief Justice Marshall observed that he could cite from the common law the most complete evidence that the intention is the most sacred rule of interpretation. A constitution is a written document. And as John Selden observed, a man's writing has but one sense, which is what the author meant when he wrote it. That is the essence of communication. It is for the writer to explain what his words mean. The reader may dispute the proposition, but he may not insist in the face of the writer's own explanation that he meant something different. Well, activists say, but words change their meaning. To be sure, they do. But we, were we to write a new constitution, we could use words according to our present meaning. But we have no right to saddle our meaning on the clearly different meaning that the Founders assigned to their words. That's just a device for escaping their explanation of what they meant to accomplish. To this day, we seek to ascertain the intention of Congress in construing statutes. Every student of statutory construction knows that. And I would ask, why should judges feel bound by the legislator's intention and feel free to ignore the will of the framers, a will that was ratified by the people? The writing. Jefferson declared, was employed in order to bind our delegates down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. They weren't using words idly in carrying out their purpose of curbing excessive exercise of power. They were using words to be chains. And we dissolved those chains and we changed the meaning of the words. And I may say, certainly the court from earliest times was a devotee of the original intention. I call your attention to a rarely noted case, Rhode Island against Massachusetts, 1938. The construction must necessarily depend on the words of the Constitution. 
the meaning and intention of the, of the convention which framed and proposed it for adoption and ratification of the conventions, the ratification conventions, to which this court has always resorted in construing the Constitution. We're not overturning some idle fantasies of a guy called Raoul Berger. You're dealing with a doctor which Thomas Gray said, and he's an activist, has deep roots in our history, deep roots in constitutional law. Now, did the founders mean that their intention should prevail? Madison wrote that if the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified be not the guide in expounding it, there could be no security for a faithful exercise of its powers. Jefferson pledged himself to exercise its powers in accord with the intention of those who framed and ratified the Constitution. Moreover, that the framers meant the Constitution, who meant the Constitution to be permanent, intended posterity to resort to their intention is evidenced by the preservation of the Convention Journal. The reason, James Wilson explained, was that, and I quote, as false suggestions may be propagated, it should not be made impossible to controvert them by resort to the journal. In the words, keep this journal because others, our generation, are going to have a false view of what we meant and the journal will confute them. And in the state ratification conventions, for example, there were quite a few framers who were there and were asked constantly to explain, well, what did you mean? Did, isn't there a danger it'll mean this and the other? And the framer who was a delegate from Virginia, for example, or Massachusetts, explained to the, those who weren't at the convention, oh, no, no, we had no such purpose in mind. We meant this. Now, how can we toss that out in good conscience? I may say, I'll uh, close with a, a seldom noted remark of Justice Harlan, who, to my mind, was the outstanding judge of this generation. When the court disregards the express intent in understanding of the framers. It has invaded the realm of the political process to which the amending power was committed, and it has violated the constitutional structure which it is highest duty to protect. Thank you. Our subject is originalist theories of constitutional interpretation. And I want to argue, in a sense, that that is not a real subject, that what is commonly called originalism is not a real, or at least not a very coherent, option for constitutional interpretation. I know of much dispute about originalism, but most of the proponents of what goes under that name seem to me not to have taken the theory of interpretation or of originalism very seriously. The subheading for our topic that was conveyed to us in a letter uh, is textualist and intentionalist options. And I want to be clear that the originalism that I am not sure is an available choice for constitutional interpretation is what is called intentionalism, the notion that contemporary constitutional questions are to be answered by reference to the intentions of those responsible for putting the provision that is in question on the books. What is called textualism seems to me unproblematic. To be a textualist, as I understand it, is simply to feel that those interpreting the Constitution are, bo are bound by its words. 
it is common to assume that interpreting words is an easy process, and in particular, to confuse uh, fidelity to language with a narrow literalism. Uh, literalism in interpretation raises uh, familiar problems, uh, and I am certainly not a literalist. But if textualism is merely an acknowledgment of the authority of the Constitution's language, I am a dyed-in-the-wool textualist. Intentionalism, uh, or as I will call it from here on out, originalism, is quite another thing. With only 10 minutes, I will first simply mention, uh, without discussing, uh, three well-understood and serious problems with originalism. Uh, the obvious historical problem, what I call the summing problem, how to define the appropriate group of intenders and then combine their individual subjective states of mind to come up with a constitutional intention, and the problem of the easy manipulability of levels of generality and specificity in defining the relevant intention. I would like to concentrate on instead on what seems to me a more fundamental problem with the originalist enterprise, uh, one that has received relatively little attention in the discussions of the subject. The problem is basically this. Assuming that we have surmounted the summing problem so that we can talk of a single intender, consider the hypothetical question of how the original intender would resolve a contemporary constitutional problem had he promulgated the original language originally and decided all the cases that had arisen pursuant to it in the meantime and indeed had lived through everything that had happened in the meantime. Is the originalist answer to the contemporary constitutional question necessarily the same as the answer to this hypothetical question or might it be different? Let us consider those two possibilities in turn. If the originalist answer is necessarily the same as the answer to this hypothetical question, if that is what originalism means, then originalism is meaningful, but it brings with it none of the answers to contemporary questions that those who style themselves originalist so confidently assert it does. It does not tell us that Roe against Wade is wrong, or right for that matter, nor that the legislative apportionment cases are wrong or right. Originalism in this sense tells us precious little about how contemporary constitutional questions are to be answered because the determinants of an individual's decisions over time are many and complex. Individuals often change their minds as they live and learn and grow or fail to grow. In particular, consider a single individual first harboring some original intention as he promulgates a constitutional provision and then successively confronting two different cases, different from each other and different from anything he had thought about when he promulgated the provision, two different cases that arise under that provision. I would assert that the answer to the problem that arises in the second case would be very much influenced by the process of reasoning that went into the first case. We have much to learn about reasoning by analogy, but it is clear that much legal reasoning requires judgment that one situation is like an earlier one, that in real cases those judgments of similarity are seldom unproblematic, and that once one judgment of similarity has been made, there are then two potential bases for further judgments of similarity, the subject of the original intention on the one hand 
and of the first decision on the other. And I would further assert that the relationship of analogy is not, in any obvious sense, a transitive one. If B is analogous to A, C can be analogous to B, even though C is not analogous to A. If this is so, then the judge, or my hypothetical original intender deciding all cases over time, is inevitably off on a decisional in journey informed by analogies that after a while will lead places that may bear only a faint historical relationship to something that was originally intended. The journey through analogies or other real world influences on an individual's decisions can quite possibly even lead to a repudiation of something the intender would recognize was not or was originally intended. My favorite example of a step in such a journey of analogies is Yick Woe against Hopkins, the early 14th Amendment case raising the question, among others, of whether Chinese aliens were entitled to the protection of the amendment. The court held in favor of their claim, and I do not know of a single contemporary constitutional scholar, self-styled originalist, or some other breed who claims that Yick Woe was wrongly decided, at least in that respect. Yet the question in Yik Wo is not identical to any subject of original intention. Yik Wo becomes an easy case, if it is one, only by means of a non-obvious analogical step. And once that step is taken, Yik Wo is then available to inform further steps in the journey that the deciding agency must travel. Then there is the second possibility that originalism means something other than answering questions by reference to my hypothetical intender deciding all cases over time. But then one must acknowledge that the contemporary decision is governed by something other than the mental state of the intender, as it would interact with events and information over time. About any such assertion, I have two questions. First, how do we choose what part of the mental state of the intender that would have it actually influenced his decisions to ignore? There is very little discussion of this question in the literature. One scholar who has addressed this question is my colleague at uh, that other part of the Northwest Territories, uh, Michael Perry, with whom I have talked about this subject many times. Professor Perry says that the originalist's obligation is to follow that part of the intender's mental state that he authoritatively established but I do not know how to identify that part. The intender has a perfectly good way of authoritatively establishing constitutional language, but none I know of for authoritatively establishing a part of his mental state. My second question is, supposing we could segregate part of the intender's mental state from the rest and answer constitutional questions by reference to only that part, what would be the appeal of doing so? I understand the appeal of construing language by reference to the state of mind of the author of the language. In contracts, uh, Professor Berger, to the contrary notwithstanding, we don't always take that route. We often prefer the understanding of the addressee of the language. But using the author's state of mind has several virtues that I will not belabor here. But when we choose only a part of what would actually have informed the author's decision has it been his to make, we would be more candid to acknowledge that the decision is really ours and not to try to clothe it with the authority of the language the intender promulgated by pretending that it is really a decision referable to his intention. 
My 10 minutes is almost surely gone by now, so let me close with a plea for candor. If one takes what I have said seriously, it is apparent that originalism does not provide a basis for resolving constitutional questions that can be abstracted from the actual process of confronting and deciding those questions. In particular, the role of precedent, to refer to Judge Ginsburg, Ginsburg's uh, final and I think crucial question, in particular, the role of precedent will likely loom large in any decision-making process that is used to elaborate the meaning of language promulgated at one time and then applied to a series of problems over an extended period. Precedent would certainly play such a role for the intender were he deciding. What really animates much of the originalist enterprise is not a reasoned conclusion that there is a theory there, but rather a dissatisfaction with what is perceived to be mischievous judicial activism. Nothing that I have said is meant to choose between judicial activism and judicial restraint. That is a debate that has and should be carried on in its own terms and that will proceed to a happier ending, I firmly believe, when we no longer cloud the issue by reference to an unattainable regime of decision according to original intention. Thank you. It's apparently become inevitable, even at Federalist Society meetings, that discussions of constitutional interpretation uh, begin to invoke uh, the literary uh, critics. Uh, this morning, in, a, in that uh, very interesting discussion, I did not hear of the names of John Marshall or Joseph Story or Chancellor Kent uh, as inspirations for our interpretive method, but we did hear quite a bit about Jacques Derrida, Stanley Fish, and Michel Foucault. Um, I feel uh, rather grateful, and maybe I suspect many of you do as well, for some of the practical information we gained this morning. Um, in my case, it was not the meaning of the Enolo-Edelson rule. In fact, I did a paper on the Enolo-Edelson rule when I was in janitorial school. Um, in my case, it was the correct pronunciation of Derrida. But in any event, it seems, uh, it seems that we have changed our, uh, our cast of heroes or our, our, our source of inspiration. We lawyers, it is now said, should learn how to read the Constitution from modern methods of reading such texts as Hamlet or the Bible. Well, I'm not sure that I'm much like modern methods of reading Hamlet, and I'm quite confident that I do not like modern methods of reading the Bible. But that is not my point. I do not read the Bible with the same purpose or in the same way that I read Hamlet, and reading the Constitution has yet a different purpose and therefore a different interpretive method. In my opinion, interpretation is like architecture, at least in this respect, that form must follow function. A good interpretation of Hamlet is one that helps me to appreciate the artistry of the work. One good interpretation might direct my attention to ways in which the choice of language intensifies the action of the play. Another good interpretation might explore the play's implicit teaching about legitimacy and government. There may be an infinite number of good interpretations, which is not to say that there are not as many more bad interpretations, bad because they're dull or untrue to the text or unilluminating. 
the standard of good and bad follows directly from the purposes for the interpretation. What are we looking for as lawyers in an interpretation of the Constitution? We are not, I think, hoping to enhance our appreciation for the artistry of the framers, though that may well be an incidental result. We are instead looking for authoritative national answers to issues of law. Since the text being interpreted is the Constitution, the specific question in each case is whether a decision made by democratically elected representatives of the people was forbidden in advance by the people through the instrument of the Constitution. While there may be many close cases, we lawyers do not have the luxury of stating that multiple interpretations of questions like this are all good. Let me be more precise. I submit that there are two essential characteristics of any theory of interpretation under our Constitution. These follow from the function of constitutional interpretation in our system, which treats the constitutional text as law and which understands that all law has its origins in the consent of the governed. First, the interpretation must be of sufficient consistency that, all, that like cases are treated alike. It must also be of sufficient coherence that those whose conduct is being governed have a reasonable basis for understanding what is required of them. Consistency and coherence are fundamental elements in the rule of law. The Constitution we know from Marbury versus Madison is law. It can be no exception. Second, the interpretation must be fairly traceable to a decision that was made at some level of intelligible principle by the people in the course of Constitution making or amending. That the decisions of the legislature may have been unwise, unfair, or oppressive cannot be sufficient basis for striking them down if they are within the powers granted by the people to their representatives. One of the proudest boasts of the American people is that we were the first to adopt a form of government for ourselves by deliberate choice and not by force or fraud. If the Constitution is held to embody principles that the people did not choose, such a holding has no democratic legitimacy. Judicial review is not an intergenerational game of bait and switch. The Constitution is law, we know from Marbury versus Madison. And as Chief Justice Marshall went on to say, the framers of the Constitution contemplated that instrument as a rule for the government of courts as well as legislatures. Knowing why we read the Constitution helps us to decide how to read the Constitution. Form follows function. We are reading it to determine what consistent, coherent rules of law our forefathers laid down for the governance of those elected to rule over us. This was the classical conception of constitutional interpretation. Unfortunately, we can no longer say that it is a prevailing conception, for that it is now under attack from at least two different directions. First, there are those who claim that it is impossible for us to comprehend what the Constitution was intended to mean, either because of limitations in the historical record or what Dean Bennett describes as the summing problem or perhaps because of the indeterminacy of language. Uh, these objections are no doubt familiar to all of you and I shan't linger over them, except to note that in practical human affairs we're inevitably forced to act in the face of incomplete information and some ambiguity and that if we buy this attack on constitutional interpretation, we can also not interpret statutes, wills, contracts, or virtually any other uh, legal instrument. Judging requires judgment, and that's why we care so much about the character and acuity of the judges uh, that, that are appointed. 
Um, more importantly, we must ask what follows from the proposition that the intended meaning of the Constitution is unknowable. Surely that must make the practice of constitutional judicial review illegitimate. If the meaning of the Constitution is radically indeterminate, the conclusion cannot be that it means whatever a judge hopes it means, but rather that it means very little. If it means very little, then we are stuck with democracy and representative institutions as our mode of government. We can do without judicial review better than the judges can do without an intelligible constitution. Now this morning there was considerable discussion of the problem of gap in, uh, in uh, legal interpretation. There are many ways in which constitutional interpretation presents the most difficult questions for interpretation, but this is one where constitutional lawyers have an advantage. If there is a gap, then the gap is to be filled by the decisions of the representative institutions. Because if there is a gap, what we are saying is that we have no reason, no confident reason to believe that whatever it is that the legislatures are doing has in fact been forbidden in advance by the people. Now a second quite different group that interprets the, con uh, that uh, differs from this classical conception, interprets the Constitution as if it froze into place the conclusions reached at the time of the framing about the application of constitutional principles to concrete situations. Now these people are not as important for their number because in fact there are very few of them. They're more important because critics of theories of original intent generally use them as the straw man upon which to attack all theories of original intent. But let me take as my example of this, just to show that it isn't an entirely fictional uh, group, the Supreme Court's decision in the case called Marsh versus Chambers. The question in Marsh was whether it is an establishment of religion for a state legislative body to hire a chaplain to deliver prayers for the assembly. Now, under the language and much of what we know about the history of the original principle of establishment, uh, I can suggest, and since we're not talking about the establishment clause here, I won't, I won't go into why, that there are very substantial reasons to believe that this violates rather core conceptions of what establishment must have meant. Uh, the Supreme Court nonetheless upheld the legislative chaplaincy. The interesting thing about the opinion is that it is based squarely and exclusively on the historical fact that the framers of the First Amendment did not believe legislative chaplains to violate the Establishment Clause. Now we can assert this historical fact with a high degree of confidence. The first Congress passed the statute authorizing paid chaplains just three days before fi reaching final agreement on the wording of the Bill of Rights a controversy in which the wording of the Establishment Clause was the most contentious point. James Madison, the principal draftsman and spokesman, proponent for the First Amendment, voted for the statute and served on the House Committee that chose the first chaplain. Marsh versus Chambers is thus a perfect test. We know far more certainly than we usually know these things that the framers did not consider legislative chaplains to violate the Establishment Clause. So what is the significance of this? Now the Supreme Court and those who contend that the meaning of the Constitution is fixed by the framers' opinions about its application to specific cases treat this history as dispositive. If James Madison and the boys thought legislative chaplains were okay, who are we to disagree? Now I dissent from this. I believe that Marsh versus Chambers represents original intent subverting the principle of the rule of law. 
unless we can articulate some principle that explains why legislative chaplains might not violate the Establishment Clause and demonstrate that that reason, that that reason continues to exist today, we cannot uphold a practice that so clearly violates fundamental principles we recognize under the clause. Now, I don't dismiss James Madison and the boys lightly. I think it's highly unusual for the framers of a constitutional provision to misunderstand completely its meaning in a specific case, although this is not the only one I could cite. Um, before we reject the guidance of the framers, though, I, I think we have to think long and hard about possible principles to explain their actions. I stand prepared to reject my own dear theories about constitutional meaning if some other theory better explains the historical data. But in Marsh versus Chambers, the Supreme Court offered no theory whatsoever, no interpretation of the Establishment Clause under which the legislative chaplaincy might be considered constitutional. The decision thus casts no light on the constitutional provision. Indeed, it can be said that Marsh versus Chambers does not interpret the Constitution at all. Now, the insistence on a principle and not just historical fact follows from the function of interpretation as enforcing the Constitution as law. If the Constitution is law, it must embody principles so that we can ensure that like cases are treated alike and that those governed by the Constitution can understand what is required of them. If Marsh versus Chambers jurisprudence governs the day, we would have nothing but miscellaneous instantiations of meeting. The Marsh style of jurisprudence suggests that the Constitution does not embody any set of coherent and consistent principles. In short, it suggests that the Constitution is not law in any recognizable sense. It might as well be Hamlet. When I first got the invitation to this conference, the letter had a text in it that included the following sentence. Each speaker will give a 10-minute talk. Now, I construed the word will to be should and took this to be a normative injunction. One of the things I've been interested in is listening to my preceding panelists on both this panel and the one that preceded it interpret by their actions this authoritative text. Even the intentionalists amongst us, and incidentally, one of the framers of this letter came up to me before the talk and said, we meant what we said. <laughs> so both textualism and intentionalism collapse here to the same result. This is not Judge Posner's 35 years construed to be 21. This is 10 minutes construed to be 10 minutes. Nonetheless, I thought all of the speakers did something quite sensible. The only problem is it's not consistent with an intentionalist or a textualist theory of interpretation. What they did was construe the language of the authoritative text by what they took to be some underlying purposes behind it, presumably a balance of the amount of time needed in order to gain some understanding of their theories versus the competing purpose of allowing others sometime too, as well as the audience, balanced yet again by the fact that those who came later would like to have equal chance with those who were earlier, all of that together leading to some sort of range between roughly 15 and 25 minutes apiece. 
The evidence here is very clear what the intentions were. You have the framers there, and they're um, telling us, and the text is also. Any event, I'll use that example from time to time, but the point that it makes is there's a larger debate about interpretation, of which the debate this panel is supposed to be focused on is really only a small part. This panel is to focus on the debate between those who want to interpret the Constitution by its text, and you have to say something about what text is, um, and those who want to interpret it by the intentions with which that text was uttered at the time it was authoritatively uttered, intentionalist interpretation. Notice those are both janitorial tools, because those are both tools designed to keep interpretation value-free, either as a matter of linguistic fact or psychological fact, as opposed to the other kinds of tools of interpretation, including precedent, but also the purposes behind a rule, meaning purpose in the sense of function, not in the sense of intention, um, and also some more general theoretical considerations, like the general principles that Mike McConnell was talking about. That larger debate isn't what we're addressing, but it's important to see that this debate between two criteria both of which purport to be value-free, is just one small part of a larger debate that I think is more interesting. Let me talk about the specific debate between intentionalists and textualists. Um, Charles Fried mentioned this morning the famous, um, now famous, janitorial analogy. As a former student of Charles's, I never noticed um, any janitorial activity. We were doing a lot of legal philosophy, and I think the writings have evidenced that since. That, I think, is also necessary to understand what textualism is, what intentionalism is, and how you might argue for one or the other in some combination against more value-laden theories. Um, let me see if we can illustrate that by some distinctions. First of all, what is textualism? Well, I'm afraid the old-time religion is fractionated. Raoul Berger's analogy to there being just one kind of originalism even when you focus just on intentionalism, you have to know that a speaker, including a constitutional speaker, might have two quite different kinds of intentions. They might have the semantic intentions to fix the meaning of the word in a certain way by examples that they picture or by definitions that they have in mind, or they might have a consequence of utterance, which they would like to see achieved by making the utterance that they think is the purpose by which the rule should be construed. Those are not the same thing. Raoul Berger actually mentioned both in the same breath, those are quite different. If I use the word vehicle, I might intend to fix its meaning by an intended exemplar, a blue Ford sitting in front of me, or I might have in mind a general consequence I hope to achieve by uttering the word vehicle, for example, keeping peace in the park, if that's the rule in which the word appears. Two quite different intentions. Worse than that, we don't have a representative sample of intentionalists on the panel, there are lots of different stripes with regard to how much force in your overall theory of interpretation you're willing to give to intentions. There is the Judge Bork position, which is in the constitutional arena. If you don't have an intended example, an intended exemplar from the framers, then the Constitution does not overturn the statute. That's to say that an intended exemplar is not only sufficient for constitutional interpretation, it's also necessary. It is the end-all and be-all. That's one version of intentionalism. A much more um, sensible version of intentionalism would be one that says it's not necessary to have a particular intention to overturn a statute, but if there is an intention, it's sufficient. And a number of people who would talk about intentionalism have that in mind. 
An even more sensible version of intentionalism would be one that says it's neither necessary or sufficient if there's a historical intention. It is simply relevant with other items to be put into this interpretive stoop. And under one interpretation, at least of some earlier work, that's really Ronald Dworkin's kind of position about the public sorts of um, statements of framers. Textualism also is a fractionated theory or part of a theory of interpretation. What is it to look at a text? Well, the first question is, what do you think the meaning of a text is? And here you have to leave janitorial school and do some philosophy of language. Here you have to ask yourself, what sort of meaning theory is it when you talk about the meaning of a word, and thus the meaning of sentences? Very, very generally, I think there are two sorts of meaning theories. There are meaning theories that resort to the conventions of a linguistic community that fix either by paradigm example or fix by definition the nature of the thing referred to. Or there are non-conventionalist theories that say that language picks out items that exist in the world, and the meaning of the term is the nature of the thing the word picks out, which is not a matter of convention, it's a matter of how the world stands. Two very different sorts of notion of meaning, which make a lot of difference when someone, such as Mr. Berger, wants to argue that if you change the meaning, that is, that you change the meaning every time you disregard intention, well, it depends what meaning is, you might not at all. If meaning is the second of those alternatives, you don't change the meaning when you change the theory of the nature of the kind of thing referred to. Was there a change of meaning when we, in fact, found out that whales were not cold-blooded fish, but warm-blooded mammals? Or did we mean the same by the word whale as those who used the word before but had a, great, uh, a, a very different theory as to its nature? Anyway, two different sorts of meaning, and again, quite a different variety as to how much force you want to give in an overall theory of interpretation to the meaning, whatever it is, of the text. You could find that under a stringent plain meaning rule, wherever the meaning is plain, or at least plain enough, that is both sufficient but also necessary to overturn, in constitutional terms, overturn a statute. So that if you don't have plain meaning, the statute survives. Somewhat more sensibly, you might say, no, it's only if the meaning is plain of the constitutional provision, it's sufficient to overturn the statute, but it's not necessary, even in the penumbra. You might overturn the statute by some other interpretation other than plain meaning. More sensible yet, and even a position that I would advocate, despite a natural law theory of interpretation, is that you do look to ordinary meaning, and that it is always the place you start, but it is neither necessary nor sufficient for an interpretation of anything in any case whatsoever. Okay, so much for clarification. With respect to the separation of these two ingredients, there's an unfortunate tendency for people who call themselves intentionalists to want to take to themselves the power of the text as part of the power of the intentions they're urging. Um, I think Mr. Berger's quotation from John Selden is of that character. When Selden says you have to really figure out what the author meant in order to figure out what he said, he's just wrong. Humpty Dumpty thought that, but Humpty Dumpty was wrong too. You don't always have the power, in fact, you never have the power to make words mean anything but what they already mean. You can mean by them, which is a function of your intention, you can mean by them anything you like. I can say gleeg, 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 and mean that it's snowing in Tibet. There's nothing wrong other than the sort of irrationality of thinking you'd understand me. Nothing wrong in saying that's my intention. So there is a difference between what's meant and what's said, and one doesn't want to collapse the two.
Okay, if you're talking then just about intentionalism versus textualism or all the other things that I think has to go into a theory of interpretation, what's wrong with it? Really two kinds of arguments that I think you've heard both today and that's in the literature. One are possibility arguments. You couldn't possibly find intentions even if you wanted to, framers' intent. And on the general principle, you oughtn't to be enjoined to do what you can't do. Since you can't do it, you oughtn't to do it. Um, second sort of argument is, even if you could find it, you shouldn't try to. And I see a reminder of the plain text. Here comes a plain meaning reminder that I'm supposed to obey this 10-minute rule. So let me simply state, it's always an advantage to have the framers or their delegates around, which you don't have when you're in court. Yes, I've been looking at the text. All right, very quickly. If you look at the kinds of arguments that are made against um, anything but intentionalist interpretation in one of these stripes, they are the kind of fear of judicial power. There's the historical argument that Mr. Berger has made, which presupposes we care what the framers intended about how we should take their intentions. Really, I think one can put aside all those kinds of arguments and ask the basic question as a matter of political theory. Do you adopt the kind of political theory about constitution making that Mike McConnell was adopting, namely that it's a consent theory, consent of the governed, plausible theory, or do you adopt some other theory as to why that text is authoritative for 20th century Americans? Suppose you take the consent theory, which I think is a plausible theory of why the constitution is an authoritative text. That doesn't answer yet the question, what was chosen? And to use an argument as old as Justice Story, and even passing through Max Radin, the legal realist. If you want to know what was chosen, what was chosen was prima facie what was said, and not what was meant but not said. There's a very good example of that in Mr. Berger's most recent article in the Powell-Berger debate about framers' intent. I know nothing about history, so I'll just take it on faith. Um, it seems that there was a debate in which Hamilton was engaged about a national bank at the, at the turn of the century before this one. And the question was whether or not there was an intention, since the text, the necessary and proper clause, for example, doesn't speak one way or the other on the issue. Well, it was the case, apparently, that with regard to corporate charters for a canal, there had been an eight to three rejection. And Mr. Berger sees that as an expression of an intention that should bind present interpretations of necessary and proper, including the one about a national bank. I would see that as, in his own language, that the people who did have this opposition, didn't have the clout to put it one way or the other in the Constitution. What they actually said, apparently, was that it was too controversial, and thus they wouldn't put it in. But isn't that a perfectly good reason to say the intent of those eight people who voted against canal charters doesn't, in fact, count for anything as the choice of those people as a whole who made the Constitution? Why not look to what, in fact, you know was voted on, which is the text, rather than what you only suppose might have been secretly intended, but didn't, in fact, have the votes to get into the text? There are many other arguments of that normative sort. There are also, I think, very strong possibility arguments, of which Bob Bennett mentioned one, but I'm going to adhere loosely to the text and sit down. Thank you. We should go around uh, once now, uh, limiting ourselves, if we can, to uh, three minutes. I'd like to start with uh, Raoul Berger, who I see is anxious to start. 
and uh, to ask him in the course of his time, if he would, to return um, to Dean uh, Bennett's uh, reference to the Yik Wo case and comment on that, please. I should say that all of my writings have uh, <clears throat> revolved around a clear intention to do a certain specific thing. I was really concerned with the question of suffrage, and I'll address myself to that because Dean Bennett asks about the question, who intended, was, it, was there a single intention? And he cites the reapportionment cases, if I recall correctly, as an example of no intention, barring it. Now, <clears throat> it's quite clear from Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, which provides that to the extent that Negro representation, that Negro enfranchisement was denied, there would be a prorated reduction of representation. What this implies is that in other respects, the states were free to deal with suffrage as they chose, but it would cost them if they excluded blacks from the franchise. That is not a single intention. That is on the face of the 14th Amendment, and it's reinforced by the 15th Amendment, which shortly afterward specifically filled the gap, as the legislative history shows, that was left in the 14th Amendment and says specifically that suffrage cannot be denied on discriminatory grounds of race. As to Yik Wo, as I understand it, a Chinese, it was held the Chinese could not be excluded from certain privileges. Now that was not out of a clear sky. The legislative history of the 14th Amendment shows that when Bingham, the draftsman of the 14th Amendment, was asked whether uh, aliens would be included with his use of persons, he said, of course so that so far as protection of aliens is concerned, they are within the 14th Amendment. The Yikwo didn't do anything that was contrary to the intention and didn't spring out of the blue. Now, I may say, when we're talking about intention, two very potent authorities, Learned Hand and Archibald Cox, doubted whether judicial review had any constitutional sanction. Judicial review was without constitutional warrant. My, the first book that I wrote assembled the evidence that the founders contemplated that there would be judicial review. If you don't have that, what happens to judicial review? It goes down the drain. Now let me turn to Professor Moore. As to meaning, and I'll cite an example given by an activist, Paul Brest. Originally, if I recall correctly, bi-weekly meant every two weeks. Modern usage is twice a week. And he says, however, to read bi-weekly in an old document in, terms, in modern terms would be improper. So there are some words which we can take safe anchor in. I'm going to close by commenting on Hamilton and the bank. I think I've read the pages in the historical record about the bank as attentively as anyone 
and I'll rely on an old man's recollection. Originally, it was proposed by Madison to charter all corporations. And it was immediately protested that this would offend the Pennsylvanians who were very much opposed to a bank. So they had that before them. They were not just talking about canals. Thereupon, as I recall, I think it was George Mason suggested, well, at least let's do this. Let's have chartered corporations, United States federally chartered corporations or canals. That too was rejected. Now, to the extent that Hamilton said that the record was inconclusive or that it was exclusively occupied with uh, canals, the record belies him. Hamilton, from the word go, not only about the National Bank, but about presidential powers. He'd been defeated as a strong nationalist in the convention, and he sought after the convention was over, after the ratification had taken place, he changed his position as Madison mercilessly showed. Thank you, Raul. Dean, Dean Bennett, in the course of, uh, of your reprise, I wonder if you could address this uh, observation. It seemed to me that in your asking us to uh, assume a founder uh, who has uh, uh, persisted, uh, who is collectively the representative of the, founders, <coughs> of the framers, and who has had the life experience of the last 200 years, and as well has inherited the precedence of the last 200 years, that in, that in, in putting the matter that way, you are um, uh, loading, uh, loading the dice, as it were, and essentially saying to us uh, or to others, um, you're bound, we're not, because even your founder would be bound. I've assumed it. Yeah. Well, it's perfectly plausible to, to, to describe that as loading the dice. I, I guess I would uh, – <coughs> think it uh, probably better to say it's uh, it's accurately describing the dice. Uh, I mean, the, the sort of startling thing about my view of all this, the startling thing to me is uh, that it, uh, it really so closely tracks uh, the legal process as we have observed it over, uh, over uh, my lifetime at least, and I think probably for the entire constitutional history. Uh, uh, and uh, that ultimately is, uh, is uh, its strongest appeal to me, that it actually works, it describes our practice, um, uh, and indeed it can accommodate a, a whole host of uh, sort of sub-theories of, uh, of uh, what should substantively inform uh, constitutional law. Um, so uh, call it uh, loading the dice, uh, um, if, if you will. I think it's really describing them. Um, or describing the game. Uh, let me make some brief comments about, uh, about a, f a few other things. Um, I would not for a moment uh, 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 pretend to challenge uh, Raoul Berger's uh, history. I'm, I'm not an, an historian, uh, and, and he is uh, uh, quite a uh, distinguished one. Um, uh, but I did, uh, before invoking uh, Yik Wo, uh, turn to the constitutional history, and I did uh, at least a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure whether I looked under aliens, uh, but I did look under Chinese. Um, and uh, I also uh, looked under, uh, I must have looked under aliens because I found uh, gypsies as well. Uh, and all I found in that uh, research was highly ambiguous references to what could and could not be done with regard to Chinese in California 
uh, and gypsies in Pennsylvania. There seemed to be a problem of gypsies in Pennsylvania at, uh, at the time, uh, by obscure figures in the constitutional uh, debates. Uh, those were the, uh, and I think there were uh, two to, with regard to gypsies and three with regard to Chinese, and all by obscure figures. Um, uh, so I conclude from that that whatever solution you have to the summing problem, uh, you have to come out and admit that there is uh, no at least very focused answer that emerges from original intention with regard to Yikwo. Uh, that doesn't mean for me that Yikwo isn't uh, an easy case or couldn't be made one, but Chinese aliens are, in uh, morally relevant terms, uh, distinguishable from the focused subjects of original intention, and hence the step from the one uh, to the other has got to be informed by analogical reasoning uh, uh, and also by a larger principles such as those that uh, Mike McConnell uh, referred to. And my only point is what you, once you take that step, you've then got Yikwo on the books to um, uh, inform uh, further decisions down the road. Um, I think, uh, as, as so often, uh, Michael Moore's uh, clarifications are, are, are very helpful and, and really uh, sort of point up um, uh, an, an ambiguity that I'm as guilty of indulging in as, as others. Uh, I uh, took the position that originalism uh, was not a real or not a very coherent uh, option for constitutional interpretation. I could have well said that I am uh, a consummate uh, originalist uh, in one sense that Michael uh, clarified. Uh, I do believe that those original intentions start the process going and uh, act as a very substantial uh, constraint, appropriately act, in fact, and appropriately act as a substantial constraint in the early stages and continue to act as a constraint in the later stages. It's just that their, their force ha is necessarily uh, diluted over time as people live through the process of constitutional interpretation. I want to address, I think, one of the more important questions, which is why, if in fact it's true, all four of us went over our time this morning. Um, because it doesn't seem to me that the problem with that is that there was any confusion over what was meant by 10 minutes. The real problem, if in fact this was true, uh, is that we had inadequately vigorous judicial review. Um, we. We, that is the four of us, were the ones who were to be constrained by this rule and having confidence that the moderator would not enforce the rule, we indulged, as usual, in, uh, in aggrandizing our own individual positions, something <laughs> which we can certainly not be confident that legislators will not uh, do as well. Um, what I fear about the uh, suggestions of ambiguity in the word 10 minutes is that uh, it might give Judge Ginsburg the wrong idea. It might lead him to think that he could, in fact, have given Dean Bennett 15 minutes and Raul Berger only nine because he likes Dean Bennett better than Raul Berger. And that if we have no, if we do not rely upon any kind of an understanding of what 10, minute me 10 minutes means, we'd have no way of telling Judge Ginsburg that he was behaving abusively. And what concerns me about Dean Bennett's position is that apparently once the precedent is set that Raul Berger only gets nine minutes and Dean Bennett 15, that in the future that that is to be an equal starting point for our reasoning about future panels. And 
What I don't understand is how we ever are able to subject that series of erroneous precedents to any uh, to any uh, uh, evaluation as to whether they are in any longer serving the purposes for which uh, Janice Calabresi's letter was originally sent out. Michael, I, uh, I submit the problem was not inadequately vigorous judicial review, but insufficiently specified property rights and the absence of a market for them. <laughs> Let me say in response to Mike McConnell's um, comment that it would not have been my intention in speaking, and notice I didn't necessarily say what I meant, would not have been my intention in speaking to derogate against using the text as the starting point for the interpretation of anything, the text meaning ordinary meaning, I just found it interesting that over ordinary meaning, which I think is clear, 10 minutes means 10 minutes, um, got overruled in, in light of other considerations. Um, let me respond briefly to the intentionalism that actually Bob Bennett and Raoul Berger share, which is the intentionalism of if you have an intended exemplar that you've got sufficient evidence that convinces you it was shared by whatever your theory of sharing you've got is for the ratifiers and the makers of the Constitution, you at least ought to use that as a starting point for your interpretation. Four points. First of all, when you think of intended exemplars, how often do you have one? When the letter used the phrase, speak for 10 minutes, was there a pictured exemplar of a particular person, Judge Posner, speak, sitting down at the end of 10 minutes? The fact of the matter is, when you use language, you rarely have such pictured exemplars of anything. It is the case, once in a while you do, and arguably the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause had one, the Black Codes of the South, but those are very rare. Second point, suppose that in fact there is one do you know that it is, in fact, supposed to give the meaning of the word? In ordinary speech, you don't have the interpretive intent that Raoul Berger in, um, gives to the framers. You don't have an intent that your pictured exemplars fix the meaning of your word. If I utter the word vehicle and happen to be picturing a blue Ford, I certainly don't intend that class of things only to apply to that Ford nor do I intend people to use the Ford as a paradigm example, a la Bob Bennett, and reason by analogy. Third point, if you had intended exemplars, and even if they were indeed to fix the meaning of the words you used, you do have to ask yourself, can you infer anything else about what was intended? We're going to go to lunch shortly, and I intend, if they have a salad, to eat the salad in front of me. If this lunch is as I expect it to be, your salad, all of yours, is going to be very much like my salad. That does not mean I intend to eat your salad because I intend to eat my salad. <laughs> if that were true, I would intend to eat all the salads. And that isn't my intention. So what you have to argue, fourthly, is what Bob Bennett wants to argue, which is, because I intend to eat my salad, I then have to analogize as to whether your salad should be included within the class term salad for some rule. And that, as he recognizes, is not itself to infer other intentions that I had, because I had an intention only with respect to my salad by hypothesis. So you have to argue by analogy. And I think, unlike Bob, I wouldn't think there is any relation called similarity that is itself primitive. Similarity is parasitic on there being specific properties by virtue of which one thing is like another. 
And what's the property that salads share? Well, unless the rules context otherwise provides some other property, I would say they share the similarity of being salads. In which event, you're interpreting not by the intended exemplar, but by the ordinary meaning of the text. Namely, what's a salad? Well, figure it out, but the intention of the starting example won't help you at all. I have the sense that uh, legal scholarship, having imperialized economics and attempted to uh, take over philosophy, now finds itself as overextended as the Roman Empire did ultimately, and the barbarians are indeed undermining the, uh, the republic that we once had. Uh, but be that as it may, we have time for only a, a couple of brief uh, questions. Uh, please. Please state your name. My name is Robert Stegman. I have two short questions for Dean Bennett. Using your similarity analogy of A to B to C and so forth, and taking A as the text of the Constitution, perhaps C may not be similar to A, but may C be inconsistent with A? In other words, isn't there a need to refer back at each stage, L, M, and Q, so that you are grounded in A, no matter how similar it may be to the next precedent, next preceding case, and uh, uh, to reconsider and review if you are not. There's a second point uh, with regard to your analogy about the 200-year-old framer who has experienced everything and been involved in these cases. The question is this. Why does it matter if the framer might have changed his mind over the passage of time? His intent is frozen in time at the point of the adoption of the Constitution, subject to change, it seems to me, by the amendment process that is provided in that Constitution. Is it not fundamentally anti-democratic to hold otherwise, and doesn't that make the judicial branch of government kind of a uh, oligarchy deciding matters of public policy without any input and indeed incapable of being changed by the representative branches of government, not unlike perhaps the presidium of the Central Committee of the Soviet Union? <laughs> Uh, with regard to your first question, um, I'm going to hope to keep the second one in mind while I answer the first. Um, with regard to your first question, uh, my uh, a point about analogies was not to the text. Uh, I announced myself a dyed-in-the-wool uh, textualist, uh, and I adhered to that so that uh, um, I mean, there are lots of complications in being textualism and textualist, and I drew a distinction between textualism and literalism. Uh, and I can't go into uh, the, those problems here, but, if, uh, but I, I adhere to the view that the uh, interpreter is bound by the constitutional uh, text um, and that that impo uh, implies some important constraints, obviously less so when the language is quite general than uh, when the language is specific. Uh, my point about analogies was analogies to uh, uh, specific exemplars uh, that uh, the intender had in mind, uh, uh, and uh, with regard to that, I don't see how uh, there, well, I, I take it back, uh, the, uh, you, the, the third step could conceivably be inconsistent with the first, that is, it could be diametrically opposed uh, to it, uh, but uh, for the reason that I will mention in a moment, that does not seem to me an illegitimate uh, step to take. The reason I'll mention in a moment is my answer to your second uh, question, and, and that, as I understand it, is, isn't the intention frozen in time? My point here is the ambiguity of the use of the word intention. If you acknowledge that the intender uh, could have changed his mind with regard to a specific 
uh, example uh, that he uh, confronts at some time after he harbors the original intention with regard to it, then there must have been something in his larger mental state that predisposed him to change his mind or that allowed him to change his mind. And one then has to draw a distinction between two parts of his mental state. One is the part of his mental state that had this exemplar in mind and that had a view about whether it was unconstitutional or not. And the other part was that part of his mental state that predisposed him or allowed him to change his mind. And it's perfectly fine to say that you choose that part of his mental state that thought that this example was unconstitutional, but it seems to me your burden to explain why that part is to be chosen to the exclusion of the other part. And it seems to me that 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 step is taken by people without facing up to the problem, and that they really want to do is associate the state of mind the uh, that they want to choose to the exclusion of that they don't want to choose with the constitutional language and indeed with the larger state of mind and pretend that no choice is involved. Uh, Dan Harris, instead of a, a brief question, can you give us a question that will elicit a brief answer? I'll try. <laughs> Professor Berger, um, a number of constitutional provisions incorporate common law principles or doctrines. For example, the words freedom of speech drew upon a whole history. Uh, an evolving history. To what extent did the framers of the Constitution, in using these words, intend that the common law principles would continue to evolve, or to what extent did they think that they would be frozen in what the, the common law doctrine was as of the time they wrote the uh, Constitution? Well, the clearest picture we have is from Madison, who said that if these terms aren't going to be held to what they originally meant to those who used them, that there's no safeguard of our liberties. But I was thinking, you made an interesting point about the common law content of terms. And let me just shift to another example. There was great anxiety about trial by jury. And in Virginia, there were repeated questions. Will we have the right to challenge jurors. And Marshall and three or four others said, of course you will, because that's an attribute of trial by jury at common law. Now, one thing that is quite clear that they made, the early cases made even clearer, is that if words had a common law content, as Story said in one of the cases for the court, the definition was as good as written into the text. I did want to say one thing about this problem of analogy moving as the gentleman suggested, not merely from A to B and to C, but to M, P, and Q. And a marvelous example of that is the San Antonio mass transportation case, under which if you drive, if you ride the subway from 72nd Street to 42nd Street in New York, you're in interstate commerce. Uh, I've, got, I've received two instructions. One was that we end at 1.15. The other was that I take only two questions. Unless we sit here in silence, I can't adhere to both. So our founder is present, I think, and I'll appeal for a further instruction. Janice? Anyone? Do we have two or three minutes before the break? One, one more question. Yes, ma'am. I have t two brief questions. <laughs> Which one would you like to put? Um, 
I will make my questions brief, but I'm assuming the answers may be long. One question is to Professor Berger and Professor McConnell. If one takes the original intent of the Constitution, would either or both of you support use of the incorporation doctrine of the 14th Amendment to apply the Bill of Rights to the states? My second question, which is addressed to all four panelists, is, <laughs> and uh, uh, my question will be brief, as I said, the answers may be long, um, is, in, again, in terms of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was, as I understand, intended in the legislative arguments held in the U.S. Congress to give the black man legal rights. There is also in the text of the 14th Amendment the phrase male citizen. In that context, are, how can the U.S. Supreme Court, under the original intent doctrine, use the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause to give men and women equal protection before the law, rather than just men equal protection before the law? If I may address myself to your second question first, what the court has done to the Equal Protection Clause is more mysterious than the way of a man with a maid, to me at least. <laughs> but I'll go back to your first question. I can say to you categorically, because I have fine-combed the history of the 14th Amendment. There is no reference to incorporation of the Bill of Rights, except, uh, though I shouldn't say that, there are some loose references by, uh, by Bingham and Howard. I've devoted several articles to that. The doctrine was rejected at the time when it was propounded to the court by Black, and the court has never retreated from that. The Barkas case was the last of the series. Now, when the court incorporated the, Fort, the Bill of Rights, it didn't do so really under the aegis of the legislative history. What it did was to look to the Due Process Clause, and it said that there were certain precious sacred rights that were embodied that are so essential for our preservation of our society that we must effectuate those, and they picked one after another. And as uh, Byron White said, each justice picked the one that happened to appeal to him at a particular moment. Now, that was constitution-making. And it certainly can't rest on the due process clause, because if there's one thing clear in the legislative history, due process to the, four, to the framers of the 14th Amendment meant procedural due process. Namely, you had to have a fair trial in court. It had nothing to do with all these other rights. And it's a fantastic doctrine when you stop and look at it. Here you have a clause in one of the Ten Amendments, and that clause is supposed to embody all the others which makes them all superfluous. But that, again, is the magic of judicial reasoning. Just briefly, there's, there's very clearly no warrant for incorporating through the Due Process Clause. There is, however, much more substantial argument that that the Bill of Rights was intended to be a, a, a definition of the Privileges and Immunities Clause under the 14th Amendment. Uh, I won't go into the evidence, but those are two possible views. Note that what we got was worse than either of those two possible views, but rather the Supreme Court deciding that those elements of the Bill of Rights that they like 
are incorporated and those that they don't much like are not. That seems to me to have been plainly the, uh, the constitutionally illegitimate position. On that note, on behalf of principle, we have to, to come almost to a close. I just remind you that we will resume at 2. We need to resume promptly in order to, uh, to get back on the schedule. Our time was, uh, was lost to that first voracious panel. Please thank our panelists. For that.